Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to uh, our latest episode here at the Diplomatic History Channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Grant Golub, and I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of International History at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about the book Israel Politic, German-Israeli Relations 1949-69 by Lorena DeVita. Lorena DeVita is an assistant professor in the history of international relations at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. She has recently launched a five-year research project on global diplomacy and the politics of memory funded by the Alfred Landecker Foundation. Her book, Israel Politic, was published by Manchester University Press in hardback in 2020, and the paperback edition is forthcoming in December 2021. And just before we begin, I have to say that I found this book to be absolutely excellent, and I'm really looking forward to chatting with Lorena today about um, her monograph, which I highly recommend to all of our listeners to pick up and read. It's a fascinating history here uh, that deals with all sorts of issues. So, Lorena, thank you so much for for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Um, So, Lorena, I think it's probably best that we start with um, you describing to our listeners what are the sort of core arguments of this book? What, what were you trying to achieve by, by writing this history of German-Israeli relations in, in sort of broadly speaking the first half of the Cold War? Yeah, well, this is a good question. I have to say from the outset that I just find the history of German-Israeli reconciliation one of the most striking political developments of the 20th century. Uh, and I was, you know, it was I started a while ago uh, thinking about the topic and researching the topic. Um, and I was reading the news. Uh, and in the news, we see the German-Israeli relationship as being portrayed as a very strong one today. And I just couldn't help but thinking, well, how did this all begin? How did this all start and how was it possible, especially after the Holocaust, for uh, the Federal Republic of Germany and Israel to start having uh, diplomatic and other kinds of relations again. So what I try and do uh, in the book is to place the origins of this relationship within the historical context in which these developed. And the way in which I read this is that that context was one that was very much dominated by the Cold War rivalry, because I look at the 1950s and 60s. So, of course, within Europe and beyond, there were very strong political tensions and, and dynamics that were related to the bipolar rivalry. But also, and simultaneously, these were also crucial decades for the complication of a series of tensions within the Middle East uh, that were related to a series of rounds of fightings between Israel and uh, its Arab neighbors in the wake of uh, the 1948-49 war. Uh, So what I was trying to do was essentially this, was trying to look at these entangled uh, histories, but also uh, looking at how these 
German German strivings for attaining power and legitimacy in the international domain in the early Cold War years, at a time in which both Germanys were also having to negotiate the legacy of a difficult past within the context of their Cold War rivalry. So something that I <clears throat> wanted to sort of pick up on that you were just saying was, so the the origins of your interest in this were sort of you, in a contemporary sense, you were sort of thinking about, okay, um, on the face of it, it, it would it's quite striking to think that Germany and Israel today have such a strong relationship. And, and you were sort of curious to know why that is, given the contentious history that um, the people of Israel would have, of course, with the with the Holocaust and, and, and the Nazi past. Is, is that sort of a correct, correct restatement of your interest? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So something that I, I, I think that we should start with then is before what the, the two Germanys are created in 1949, how are, how are Germans in sort of occupied Germany? Of course, for our listeners who don't know, Germany after the Second World War is occupied by the Allied powers and split into four occupation zones between the United States, the United Kingdom, France, and the Soviet Union. How are Germans in occupied Germany thinking about um, Jewish refugees from Europe, from other places, moving to what's going to become Israel? And what are their interpretations? What are their opinions about the creation of the state of Israel, which is going to precede the division and the creation of the two Germanys? Yeah, this it's a very good question. And I would answer it by saying that at the time, so in the immediate aftermath of World War II, um, a lot of the people in Germany are actually thinking about their own problems. So they right. are living in rubble, uh, they, their cities have been destroyed, uh, and there is you know, a sort of a series of issues that are related not only to, for example, the aftermath of the bombings in, in Germany as well, but also you have to imagine the influx of refugees that are German expellees, so that are coming then from the territories that uh, Germany has lost uh, in the wake of World War II and are now populating uh, German cities in some areas, especially in West Germany, paradoxically, the population uh, numbers of, of the population density is higher in the immediate aftermath of World War II, exactly because of this influx of uh, expellees, for example. So there is food scarcity, there is um, uh, housing scarcity, there is a series of you know, uncertainties related to what is going to happen uh, in the future. And really, that's how I would answer the question that the question of, of Jews also, you know, slowly making their way, you know, from DP camps, but then trying to uh, get back to their houses, uh, their property. This is not something that, broadly speaking, uh, the majority of the German population at that time was particularly concerned with. Uh, right. And in fact, uh, I was just talking uh, earlier this year to uh, Benjamin Ferenc, who uh, was playing and who was uh, had been uh, one of the uh, players at the Nuremberg World Trials, but that afterwards re remained in Germany and tried to reclaim uh, Jewish property. And he was also right. telling me that he was faced with a lot of hatred even, and uh, uh, yeah, hatred when trying to reclaim the property. So at that time, 
these, you know, before, let's say, the 1950s and, and in a sense even afterwards, uh, a lot of the German population is not really that much concerned with, uh, you know, let's say, reconciliation with the Jews, but really is trying to rebuild a country. Uh, and in a sense, this is then valid for, for both East and West Germany. Just a small caveat before I, I finish this answer. I mean, of course, there were also, uh, let's say, enlightened people. There were also those who were looking for uh, creating a dialogue, for re-establishing a sort of German-Jewish uh, connection as well. But these, I have to say, were the minority at that time. So looking at the flip side of it, uh, Israel is established in, in May of 1948, and they immediately go to war with their Arab neighbors and sort of the first Arab-Israeli war. It's also known as the Israeli War of Independence, um, which Israel wins um, with uh, Western support. Um, but so you say that Germans, um, quite understandably, given the fact that Europe has been uh, absolutely devastated by World War II and and lays in rubble, to, to use your words. But on the flip side, given the multitude of problems that uh, Israelis are now facing in establishing uh, their state in the Middle East, in dealing with extremely hostile Arab neighbors, how much of a priority is it for them to form a relationship with, uh, with the Germans, both, I guess, during when it still occupied Germany, and then in sort of the wake of the establishment of, of the two Germanys in 1949. Is, is this a huge um, priority for Israel, or is it something um, that is sort of farther down the list like it is uh, for Germans? Yeah, well, this is actually something that is a very interesting angle as well. And I think I need to qualify this a bit, because at the same time, I mean, what also has happened uh in the in the meantime, is that you can imagine there were also uh, people by that point living in Israel who had uh, who were born or had lived or worked or studied in Germany. So in right. a sense, I think it's important also to keep in mind that these let's say informal ties um, somehow existed as well. Uh, it was complicated. It was difficult. Uh, but it was there. And this has to do with the personal stories of uh, many people in Israel, uh, but also beyond. In terms of the official level and the diplomatic level, which is the one that I look at uh, in the book uh, most prominently, the question of the relations with, it, with Germany is debated at higher levels especially in the aftermath of, uh, as you say, the, the Israeli War of Independence, the 48-49 War. And this has to do with the fact that after the war, which, as you say, rightly, Israel wins, and this is incredible given how uh, sort of young the state of Israel was at the time and uh, the fact that it was attacked by its Arab neighbors. Um, but, you know, despite this victory, Israel is in also in extremely dire economic conditions. Uh, this has to do with the fact that it had fought the war, uh, but also with the makeup of, uh, uh, of the Israeli population at the time. Many of the incoming, uh, uh, you know, Israeli citizens, new Israeli citizens, they were Holocaust survivors. So uh, they needed to be provided for also by the state. This was also putting a strain uh, in addition to other the other uh, conditions 
to 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 the Israeli economy. So the beginnings of the sort of higher level um, Israeli-German contacts revolves around the question of restitution uh, of uh, Jewish property, but also this term, which in German is called Wiedergutmachung, and in Hebrew, Shilumim. So the question of, let's say, reparations, even though the term is very um, is very controversial, uh, right. of course. But there is this need to start a dialogue based especially on these economic questions. And in Israel, this is related to the fact that Israel really is in dire economic conditions. Uh, and in a sense, Germany, the, the two German states also are, but you know, the situation is, is very different there. So how does sort of picking up on this then, is Israel's interest in trying to cultivate uh, West Germany in particular um, a centerpiece of David Ben-Gurion, who's going to be the first prime minister of Israel or is the first prime minister of Israel? Is, is the reason that this is a sort of a major focal point of his foreign policy is this because of a, um, a very realistic concern just for getting money into Israel to, to actually build up this country, which, as we just discussed, immediately had to go to war to, to protect itself from its Arab neighbors? Is this sort of a realistic concern or is there sort of other, other um, motivations underlying um, the beginning of trying to cultivate ties with the official West German government after it's established um, in order to help Israel focus on building up its state institutions, building up its country, and also um, sort of recovering from the war. Yeah, this is a really interesting question. And I think that it's important to to remember that at that time, and this is something that I have in the uh, in the first chapter of the book, I start with one Israeli official who is sent into German territory in 1950, and he goes to both East and West Germany. I think this is important because, you know, at the beginning, uh, even in the first uh, sort of official Israeli notes regarding this uh, request for uh, reparations, there is no real distinction on paper between East and West Germany from the Israeli perspective, so in these Israeli notes. Uh, and what Israeli officials are trying to do is to really gauge the situation in both German states. Um, the fact that later the question of relations with Germany becomes very important for uh, David Ben-Gurion, this is absolutely true. But this is something that really happens um, in the first half of the 1950s. Uh, and the fact that, you know, ultimately, West German officials are the one who do sit down to negotiate with the Israelis in 1952 in a secret location, which was actually in the Netherlands, not very far from where I'm based right now. And the East Germans do not. Um, so at the very beginning, there is no distinction yet between the reparations from East or West Germany. These, of course, once one German state decides to sit down and negotiate, of course, the question is raised about, okay, what will the other German state do? And in a sense, you know, the 1952 talks that then lead to the signing of this agreement in, in Luxembourg in, uh, on the 10th of September 1952, 
also uh, mean that afterwards the relations between the Federal Republic of Germany and Israel will become stronger uh, than compared to the ones between East Germany and Israel that said other scholars also have uh, sort of commented on as being non-relations, uh, for example, Angelica Thiem's term, or uh, in Jeffrey Herf's uh, terminology, a sort of undeclared uh, war against Israel uh, that East Germany was waging uh, later than during the Cold War as well. Um, so this is how it all starts. And this is also why I, I titled this first part of the book, Critical Choices. So in the early 1950s, this is the time in which policymakers in East Germany, West Germany and Israel really face some critical choices about who to contact, what to negotiate, how, in which terms, and what does it mean even to sit down at the same table from an Israeli perspective with the Germans, right, with the representatives of the perpetrators. So going going directly on, on that, you know, especially given the fact that the, the first generation of Israelis um, Almost all of them are going to be emergés from from various countries, most of which are, you know, Eastern Europe or or Germany. Um, but of course, you have people coming from from all over the world, right? The Middle East, North Africa, etc. How how does the Holocaust itself factor into their views on dealing with both Germanys, and you know, I guess more specifically? The fact that, especially in West Germany, you have so many former Nazi bureaucrats working in the new um, uh, government of the Federal Republic of Germany, also known as West Germany. How does this shape sort of early contacts and ties between Israel and and the two Germanys? I mean, of course, the Nazis are not really going to be prevalent in East Germany at all. But is this something that's a major issue? And and or is Israel put to, pushing for what's called denazification, or is it is this sort of put on the back burner because they have uh, larger issues to deal with, like just getting money into Israel? Well, this is again really important, really thorny question as well. Um, <laughs> now you have to imagine that uh, now the state of Israel before deciding to actually sit down and negotiate with the with the West Germans, uh, the reason parliamentary debate in the Knesset, so in the Israeli parliament. This takes place in January 1952. And this was the most heated debate, uh, especially at that point, the state of Israel is very young. Uh, I really recommend uh, to all the listeners to go and listen and, uh, and read up to the uh, to the uh, minutes of the, of the parliamentary debate. The way in which the Holocaust is present is absolutely clear then. It was absolutely clear for all those who took part in the debate that no amount of reparations would ever repair anything. And in right. fact, the, I am using the term reparations, but as I said before, I know it's a, it's a very um, controversial one, but I do this because in terms of translating from Germans, that's, that's how I would uh, uh, translate it. Uh, so in that sense, the, the horrors of the past are absolutely evident and they're very present in that debate also thereafter. Uh, you also have to imagine that at first, in the early years, uh, the Israeli passports were all printed with uh, the 
they had this sentence printed on them, which was that the passport was valid for all countries except for Germany. So there was really a very strong and fierce sense of what had happened and the fact that that this could never be ignored or forgotten or repaired in any way. Um, so really, and this is part of the Israeli debate, uh, I'm now focusing on the early 1950s, but every time, you know, the, the West German-Israeli ties gradually strengthen, but every time David Ben-Gurion is very often sort of challenged by the opposition, but sometimes also by his own coalition members about the, the ties that he's forging with uh, West Germany and with the Germans in general. In terms, uh, now then there is this other aspect of your question, the amount of personnel continuity in German institutions, so between and after the years of the uh, Nazi regime. Uh, this is absolutely correct, what you say. Uh, there were many studies focusing on really all the sort of administrative and bureaucratic elites, so the foreign ministry, but also the judicial, other key ministries uh, that have documented the high level of continuity of personnel between the sort of pre and after uh, 45 um, uh, in terms of personnel, especially in West Germany, also in East Germany as well. I think it's important to say, even though, of course, East German propaganda very much uh, sort of focused on the West German continuities and so on and so forth. Um, this is a topic that pops up in the German-Israeli relationship periodically. And I would say most strikingly when the Eichmann trial begins. Uh, this is in 1961. And at that time, then West Germany becomes very worried about how you know West Germany is going to be portrayed in the Israeli media, but also the international media. And East Germany at that point also sees a sort of golden opportunity to attack West Germany and highlight all of these sort of, let's say, former Nazis that are still within the highest echelons of the West German bureaucracy. So sort of switching gears a little bit and now sort of thinking a little bit more about the German perspective and sort of the German-German rivalry, how does Israel sort of moving into the 1950s factor as an issue in sort of Cold War bilateral ties between West and, and East Germany? I mean, is this something that's sort of coming up a lot in the dealings that they're having one another? Is this sort of a major Cold War issue between the East Germanies? Are they, is each side sort of using it as a cudgel against the other um, not only in their relations with one another, but in their relations with sort of the wider world and, of course, with the superpowers. I mean, how does Israel, I guess, put another way, how does Israel sort of factor in the German mind as the Cold War rivalry and sort of Cold War bipolarity becomes a, a quote unquote permanent feature of the international system? Yeah, well, there is. Something that is very important to explain here, uh, because yes, Israel eventually becomes also part of this, from this German-German perspective, a very important and difficult uh, actor to deal with from the perspective of the German-German Cold War rivalry. And the reason why um, is something which is called the so-called 
Holstein Doctrine. Uh, this was enunciated in 1955, uh, and essentially it foresaw that West Germany was the sole legal representative for the whole of Germany, and that any recognition of East Germany would be interpreted as a quote-unquote unfriendly act. Now, the idea, the aim of this Halstein Doctrine was to isolate the German Democratic Republic by prescribing a diplomatic and economic boycott of the countries that had relations with, and therefore recognized the existence of, the East German states. Because the Cold War in Germany is really a rivalry about also prestige, about legitimacy, about existing and representing the whole of the German people. Uh, this sounds very abstract, but in fact, it's something that the two German states uh, fight about in a myriad of ways. And really, I want to say also all over the globe. Uh, there is this excellent volume by uh, William Glenn Gray on the uh, Germany's Cold War that really maps this rivalry in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, and so on. In the Middle East, this, of course, is also the case. So West Germans, for example, become very worried that the Arab state might recognize East Germany if West Germany establishes diplomatic ties with Israel. Um, and this is a sort of diplomatic situation that dominates much of the 1950s and 1960s. Until then, uh, sort of diplomatic relations between West Germany and Israel are established in 1965. But really, until that moment, there is a sort of uh, there is a sort of freeze in any talk of diplomatic ties between West Germany and Israel for this reason. So, for the fear that the Arab state might uh, seek revenge by then recognizing East Germany, which would have been completely uh, anathema to uh, West Germans themselves. Um, so this is a very, it's a very interesting point, also because it's something that changes. It really becomes a lot more rigid as the Cold War progresses. Uh, just to take a, a step back, just for a moment, when West Germany and Israel uh, negotiate this uh, agreement in the restitution agreement in 1952, West Germany also makes a timid attempt to offer diplomatic recognition to the state of Israel, so really to exchange ambassadors. But by that point, the Israeli foreign ministry rejects this. It was way too early for Israel at that time. With the further complication of the situation in the Middle East, so uh, in the mid-1950s, then Israel becomes gradually more isolated in the region as well. Uh, the, the conflict becomes more and more complex. Uh, it's clear that it's not something which is going to be solved anytime soon. Then Israel tries to switch gears and again, sort of secretly behind from the, uh, the limelight, but also becomes then more interested in this diplomatic recognition from the Federal Republic of Germany, so from West Germany. And at that point, it is West Germany that is very, very hesitant about the question of diplomatic recognition. And the whole point here has to do with this fear of East German recognition on the part of the Arab countries. How, how does sort of the, the issue of how both the German states are sort of, um, you know, trying to undermine 
one another was sort of within their bipolar rivalry, which is, of course, a rivalry within a, a wider East-West rivalry happening during the Cold War. I mean, how do how is East and West German thinking not only about Israel, but about sort of the greater Middle East in general? How much of that is shaped by their relationships with the superpowers and how much of that is uh, not necessarily being dictated to them? Uh, because, of course, the Germans on both sides are extremely powerful actors, as as your book, um, you know, again and again stresses and shows. But how much of that is how much of German thinking about the region is shaped by American and Soviet priorities and the American and Soviet relationships with each of their client states? Yeah, this is a very good question, because the Cold War, it, it, this is also something that I uh uh, explore very much in the book. So the Cold War, also the so between the two superpowers, the rivalry between the two superpowers shapes the history, this history too. But what I try and also argue is that it does so to a certain extent. What I mean by this is the following. So at first, this 48-49 uh, war that we have mentioned several times now, this is something that Israel manages to, to win also thanks to the support coming from the Soviet Union and sort of the, the arms transfers from Czechoslovakia at that time. Because also the Soviet Union is uh, very quick in its recognition of Israel, for example, just as the United States. This, however, changes very rapidly and very swiftly within the uh, sort of Soviet policymaking. Because if in 1948, then the Soviet Union was a sort of, let's say, supporter and supported Israel, this becomes, uh, Israel becomes a lot less interesting, let's say, in Soviet eyes uh, as the Cold War goes on. Uh, now, there is a, also a series of uh, anti-Semitic purges within the Soviet bloc. Uh, also, the, the last years of, of Stalin are dominated uh, by anti-Semitic purges as well, uh, but also not just in the Soviet Union, but also in other countries, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and more. Um, so the fact that the Soviet Union goes from supporting Israel at first to essentially making a fundamental U-turn on the subject also very much guides the East German policy vis-a-vis -vis the region. Uh, another thing that I show uh, in the book is that in 1948, so much earlier, there had been also talks between, let's say, future Israeli uh, uh, bureaucrats and representatives and future East German ones, also on this question of uh, uh, restitutions, indemnification, or any other kind of uh, economic help. But this is something that then East Germany never picks up on later as the Cold War rivalry intensifies, because also for these East German ambitions to be recognized, uh, the Arab countries become a lot more interesting than Israel itself. And in fact, the West German-Israeli uh, contacts and connections and uh, and also this Wiedergutmachung uh, agreement becomes something that East German propaganda insists over and over again when dealing with Arab audiences to try and portray itself as the sort of real friend of the Arab peoples and then more broadly of, you know, uh, all the peoples that want to uh, be free from uh, colonization and the imperialist Western states uh, and so on. 
So in that sense, the Soviet shift uh, is very important from uh, in order to shape also this East German approach to the reason the region. There is no doubt about it. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, there is also some room for maneuver for both German states as well. Just um, quickly, so that the listeners have an idea of the sort of equivalent and opposite West German moves around the same time. Um, I think it's also important to keep in mind that, you know, on the one hand, it is true, the uh, United States, but also the, the British, the French were, for example, in support of these uh, negotiations and agreements between West Germany and Israel in the early 1950s. But uh, really, the initiative had also uh, come from Konrad Adenauer. He uh, gave an interview on the topic already in 1949, so it was also very much his initiative as well. And I think, interestingly, uh, the early security ties, for example, between West Germany and Israel that start in the wake, so after the Suez War of 1956, in 1957, there is a secret uh, meeting between, among others, uh, Shimon Peres and uh, Strauss, who was then uh, the German defense minister. And these security ties between the two countries start very much independently of the United States, for example. So there is, of course, uh, support that of each German state for the respective superpowers, and there is, let's say, a broad harmony in terms of policy, but this is not really one-to-one at all times. There is also West and East German initiatives to try and make their own interests, and I think also important to say the relationships within each bloc, so both East and West, These are, of course, alliances, but these shouldn't make us blind to the fact that there was also competition within each alliance as well, not just between uh, East and West. So sort of within talking about East German considerations, why? So you talked about sort of the the Soviet turn, which um, in in looking at the Middle East, which has, uh, of course, an influence on on East German policy making towards the the region, but is there sort of a um, a perception that Israel is is sort of getting too close to West Germany, so we should try and cultivate uh, a counterweight by sort of focusing on the Arab states, or um, is it sort of more nuanced than that? Okay, like the the Israelis might be getting too close to the West Germans, and so we should try and cultivate them as well, and and sort of have Israel. Uh, be interacting with both of us, or, or should we just say, okay, Israel is is going to go in a different way, and and there's all these other Arab states which are much more numerous than them, and they all surround Israel, so we're going to focus on them. I'm sort of basically what I'm asking is is can we delve a, a, more into what sort of the East German priorities are in terms of trying to cultivate the Arab states more? then they wind up trying to establish ties with Israel, which of course you say they do, but it's more delayed. It's not as, it's not as focused. There's sort of a more, um, more of an interest in, in looking at and looking at other nations in the Middle East. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, for, for the East Germans, the Arab states become really the, the main priority. They are absolutely uh, right. focused and, and almost obsessed with the, uh, with the Arab states. Uh, and this is something, I mean, it's also a calculation of, of relative power and interests and what's the East German states could get out of uh, uh, really the, the the Arab states. We're talking here about uh, you know economic exchanges, but also um, and you know gradually as the uh, 1950s and 60s and sort of the Cold War progresses, this is always more. Uh, there is always more economic exchanges, but also uh, for example weapons transfers uh, and and also know-how uh, in a sense this is something that has to do with really this uh, this need uh, and and obsession for this question of recognition uh, so there is a part of it which has to do with the standing of the GDR internationally uh, and there is also really a calculation of power in the sense that you know for for the GDR there is no doubt about it the East German states are a lot more uh, interesting and appealing and this is really the audience that uh, is Germany cultivates uh, for for much of the 1950s, 60s, beyond as well, of course. Uh, it's just that my, my book ends in 1969, so this is why I'm focusing on these years in particular. Right. Uh, it is also true, so that what I was uh, trying to do uh, in the book was also to show that at some level, and you also pointed to this in the question, like at some level, certain exchanges between East Germans and Israelis still happened. So I, for example, map uh, a couple of the uh, anniversary ceremonies for the Communist Party of East Germany, in which, for example, the Israeli communists are invited. And I uh, try and depict, you know, uh, how they're welcomed and, and what they say and, and what happens there. I also have found some very interesting uh, sort of more uh, private stories of uh, personnel of the East German embassies, for example, in, uh, in Czechoslovakia and Prague, that in fact had very close personal ties to people who were now Israeli diplomats, but in fact they had both, uh, both families were, uh, knew each other from before the war from Germany. So there is all of that, uh, but in terms of the official policy line, the GDR is very much obsessed with this question of recognition and is very much insisting on the Arab audiences to get to this position of international prestige that uh, otherwise the West Germans were really doing their best to block, also using economic financial means and the supporting to developing nations, for example, to really block the East German margins for maneuver in the third world, uh, for example. So, this is it's a complex uh, line as it were uh, but there is no doubt that from an east german perspective the arab audiences are very very fascinating and you know it becomes more and more clear that they're also quite sensitive to uh, the points you know to attacking israel or attacking israel west german ties this really becomes uh, one of the top three suggestions in every East German paper that deals with policy lines about how to conduct the propaganda war, which I also have in the book. I don't consider it as a sort of extra, but I really consider it as partial, uh, integral part of this East German Cold War uh, in the Middle East and beyond. 
how do sort of later crises in the Middle East, uh, like the Suez crisis, and uh, maybe this isn't a crisis, but it's definitely a flashpoint, the Eichmann trial, and, and then the Six-Day War, how does this impact Israel's ties with both the German states? I mean, are these sort of inflection points? Are they not as important as you might think? I mean, how how does this change perceptions and, and ideas about the relationships between Israel and, and the two Germanies? Yeah, these are very important turning points. So in terms of uh, uh, 1956, uh, this is a very important uh, war, the Swiss war, for for several reasons. Uh, the you know, and I would look at the aftermath, especially um, to say that, for example, it is in the aftermath of the Suez War that the security ties between West Germany and Israel are established. I think about uh, 1956 is also important to say uh, in relation to what we were saying earlier about the, the relationship between West Germany and the United States and how that influences the West German approach to the region. For example, uh, you know, as, as the li- listeners might know and, and recall, uh, 1956 was very much not sort of U.S. approved uh, kind of uh, war uh, right. uh, in the Middle East, uh, and this the idea of having been left uh, uh, uninformed about what uh, the French and the British and the Israelis were planning was really something that was uh, shocking for uh, U.S. policymakers and and infuriating, surely. And one of the elements that the Americans tried to sort of uh, push in order to put pressure on Israel in the aftermath of the war was to go to the West Germans and asking them to suspend the payments of the uh, Wiedergutmachung uh, Restitution Agreement of 1952. And this is something that, um, you know, the West Germans resist and try to not stop. Uh, This is also the very first time that Ben-Gurion writes to Adenauer. The two had never met because uh, the, it was the Israeli foreign minister who had gone to sign the, the agreement in 1952. And even he had been attacked, right? Because the idea of meeting Germans, sitting down with them, was a very, very controversial sort of uh, issue. Uh, so the aftermath of the Suez War is a very important uh, moment for really the strengthening of the ties between West Germany and Israel uh, in this sense. Uh it is also, as I mentioned, in 1957 that uh, Shimon Peres, together with two others, Asher Ben-Natan and uh, Chaim Laskov, goes to this holiday house of the defense minister. Uh, they rent a car in order to not be seen driving to his place. Uh, they do it from France, uh, <laughs> from secondary roads. Uh, so it's really an, an incredible story there. And what they discuss is, uh, let's say, still a little bit unclear, even though Paris has it in his memoirs and, and Strauss as well. But I mean, what is clear is that after that meeting, Israel begins the secret sales of Uzi uh, machine guns that were followed then by other weapons and sort of uniform materials that were sold to the Bundeswehr. So in 1957, there is these, uh, and really after the Swiss War, the security ties between the two countries strengthen. And this is also, you know, beyond these details that I've now given, but, you know, from a broader policy perspective, Adenauer was absolutely uh, sure that 
the Soviets were going to use the Middle East to sort of infiltrate that region with the communists and communism. And in the end, they were going to use the Middle East to then enter into Europe and conquer Europe also ideologically and beyond. So he is absolutely, you know, it becomes clear in that sense that West Germany and Israel, uh, that their security interests are very much uh, in, in become more clearly in harmony with each other. And there is also these security ties with these arms transfers uh, that start uh, after that. Uh, so 1956 is a very important uh, turning point in that regard. Uh, from the East German perspective, is also a sort of frustrating but important turning point uh, because, for example, uh, it was clear, this question of recognition that I was mentioning earlier, uh, there is one anecdote about the East Germans trying to, for example, take part uh, to the discussions that were play- taking place in London before uh, the war started, but after the nationalization of the Swiss Canal and the part of Nasser, that the East Germans really want to be taken seriously and they really want to take part in these negotiations and talks, but they are turned down essentially to try to, uh, you know, enter these negotiations, but they're not allowed in. They're really not <laughs> on the sort of guest list. And, and this is also important to understand as a sort of source of uh, frustration and something that they will try over and over to uh, make themselves seen as respectable, important allies for Egypt uh, then and beyond. Um, so this is this is about 1956. You were also mentioning the Eichmann trial and then the Six Day War in uh, respectively in 1961 and 1967. Um, now I will take the question chronologically in the sense that 1961 is also a very important year. So in terms of these uh, propaganda wars. You can imagine the sensitivities of the West German establishment, um, the fear that you know this impending trial will allow East Germany to uh, attack the West German continuities of personnel, uh, and there is a big uh, you know mobilization of uh, resources of really brainstorming on the part of the west german diplomats how can we deal with this trial and what are going to be the consequences for us how is the contemporary germany being portrayed when you know dealing with uh, with really the, the the holocaust and one of its uh, key planners as well right. uh, so in that sense this is a it is a crucial turning point because uh, this also it becomes clear that for Ben Gurion there is no interest at all in attacking the Germany of today. Uh, this is something that Ben Gurion tr- says over and over again during his uh, uh, the years of uh, of his uh, yeah prime ministership. So uh, <laughs> in Israel, um, because he sort of tries to keep the Israeli public, including the opposition, but also those within his coalition who critique him, to sort of keeping an attention on the Arab states, on the sort of current enemies, and not, let's say, the, the, uh, the enemies of, of the past. Um, so in that sense, the Eichmann trial is very important. Again, the GDR, you know, is, is uh, uh, really very much trying to... Uh, really, 
used the opportunity to to bash West Germany. Um, I've also in the book the uh, story of an East German lawyer, a sort of star lawyer of the time, Friedrich Karl Kaul, going to Jerusalem and trying to uh, disseminate the information about people who are currently within West Germany, within these highest echelons of power, and who had uh, a Nazi past, and the world is silent to this. And of course, you know, for the Israeli audience you, and, and others as well, you have to imagine that this is a very uh, touchy subject. And, you know, so in a sense, the East German propaganda had uh, some, you know, some credibility and also some uh, possibility to uh, have an effect. Um, so this is briefly what, what I would say about the Eichmann trial in the sense that it was certainly a very tense, very difficult and delicate moment right. for West Germany in particular and the GDR as well. But it is also, uh, you know, something that within Israel, you know, the, the interests, let's, you know, beyond the court, but also of Ben-Gurion is that this is a trial that takes place in Israel, that it is important for that country and yeah. you know really trying to silence all you know keep at a distance this sort of german german cold war that now all of a sudden is in, is in jerusalem with these random sort of lawyers popping up with all sorts of uh, uh, materials <laughs> and then the, the west german intelligence services also being involved in trying to understand what uh, is going on and what might happen and uh, and so on and so forth so how how does because 1961 as you said is a very important year not only because of the Eichmann trial but also you have the Berlin crisis of this year um, and I was wondering sort of after this Berlin and and therefore Germany as a whole sort of comes lower on the priority list of of Cold War flashpoints right like the Cold War shifts to other areas. Um, at least the global Cold War does, or the or the the superpower competition between the United States and the Soviet Union begins to shift away from Europe at, uh, after 1961 and starts to shift to other areas of the world, you know, but in particular uh, the global South or or what we would have referred to as the Third World. And so, how does the shift away from Berlin and therefore Germany as the epicenter of the global Cold War? How does that impact the regional Cold War between the two Germanys and then also their relationships with um, with Israel as we sort of move further and further into the 1960s. Yeah, so this is a really important point, of course, because uh, as you say, um, in 1961, there is not just the Eichmann trial uh, that, that starts in April, but then in August, we have the construction of the Berlin Wall. And from a, especially, yeah, from this sort of global German Cold War perspective, also the meeting of the non-aligned movement in Belgrade in September 1961. Uh, all of this are very carefully looked at from both uh, German perspectives, from both German states. Um, in after 1961, uh, so again, you know, for example, the East Germans uh, in Belgrade 
try to be taken seriously as a sort of really existing German state, as it were. Um, they were also helped by the fact that uh, the, the West Germans had no uh, representatives in Belgrade. This was uh, one of the consequences of this Hallstein doctrine. Uh, so they really try and... Uh, you know, show the world that they are there and that they are there to be taken seriously. And in a sense, the wall, um, you know, on the one hand is perhaps an admission of the fact that, you know, a, a wall needs to be erected in order for the East German population to stay and remain right. in East Germany. But on the other, and in the immediate aftermath of this, is a very uh, strengthening feeling that, you know, there there is a solid <laughs> East German state uh, and that, you know, the, the Berlin Wall is there and that Berlin is divided, uh, for example. Uh, so, 1961 is, in this sense, a very interesting year. Uh, and the aftermath of this is uh, a really a focus, an ever greater focus on this, what you were saying, this sort of global dimension uh, within the Middle East. You know, the, the two German states are at that point uh, really competing with each other, also in terms of the amount of, for example, of the economic support that they were given to uh, countries such as Egypt, but also, you know, in other continents as well. It's a full out competition uh, that, you know, in the 1960s becomes even more intense. Um, in terms of the question of relations with Israel, this is also interesting between, because after the Eichmann trial, uh, there are two secret programs that begin and that are essentially really about West German support for Israel. One is called Project Business Partner, Aktion Geschäftsfreund. And this was a secret non-written agreement according to which Germany extended some uh, 600 million German marks in long-term loans to Israel, 70% of which was to develop the Negev area, and then the rest was allocated for industrial expansion. The other project was called, uh, it had also a sort of code name, it was called French Colonies, always in a shorter form, so Franck Col. Um, and this was uh, an agreement that was built upon the earlier arms purchase agreements that I was uh, talking about earlier. Um, and this was sealed by another of Paris visits, uh, this time in Bonn in June 1962, that really foresaw uh, that Germany would be supplying arms to Israel, including speedboats, submarines, helicopters, transport aircraft, uh, and others. Really, also, this was uh, amounting to more than uh, 600 million German marks uh, uh, by the end of 1964, which is when the news comes out uh, and then suddenly Germany has to uh, end this support. So, in a sense, the, the 1960s, the aftermath of the Eichmann trial, uh, they really, and as you were saying also with the, with the Berlin Wall, after that, the Cold War takes a different gear within this German-German dimension. The two German states are very much competing against each other. This means that they also do all that they can to strengthen key partnerships. Uh, and the one between West Germany and Israel was also and surely one of them. Uh, 
1963, I think, is also another interesting year in the German-Israeli relationship because it's the first time, uh, by and large, where you have the replacement of the two national leaders, um, or at least in Israel and West Germany. Um, David Ben-Gurion is replaced by uh, Levi Eshkel, and, and Adenauer is, is also, is also retires. And so how does that impact the relationship between the West Germans and the Israelis, especially because the two, you know, quote unquote, founding fathers of these countries are now departing the political scene? Does the relationship take a new turn or is there sort of more continuity, even though uh, the leaders of both countries retire? Oh no, absolutely. This is a it's a really important change and it's a it's a massive one as well. Uh it's a massive one for several reasons. Uh, one of them is the very different sort of personalities uh that these uh you sort of new uh figures have. Um you know, Erhard was in a sense the, the father of the West German economic miracle. So it's clearly a very important uh policymaker, but really someone who didn't have that much experience of international affairs. And this is something that is is clear. And, you know, in a sense, Eshkol, even though he was very different uh, from, from Erhard, they shared the fact that, uh, you know, they were not, you know, international affairs had not been their uh, prime focus of uh, action over the, the previous decades. This is one. So, There is a question of personalities, very different. Question of expertise, also different. But I think also in order to be uh, clear and in a sense also fair to them, they had inherited a very difficult uh, set of circumstances. Because you have to remember, so West Germany and Israel, yes, they were close, let's say, closer than maybe they had been in the 1950s, but still there were no diplomatic relations, which remained up in the air because of these West German fears, driven especially by the West German foreign ministry uh, of, you know, then facing a backlash and this Arab recognition of the GDR. But they also inherited this really actually delicate secret agreements, including about arms purchase agreements, these uh, these, uh, um, uh, loans that were also secret, Now, this was all sort of really delicate material to handle. Uh, And there was another very difficult problem there, um, which we have not really touched on yet. Uh, And that was the fact that there were, well, first of all, that Egypt had displayed uh, some new types of missiles that had been made in Egypt and that Nasser displayed very uh, in a very celebratory fashion in July 1962, uh, really terrifying the Israeli uh, security establishment and especially the head of the Mossad, Israel, uh, and that it had been clear that these missiles that were, uh, quote-unquote, made in Egypt, but that in fact there were a whole series of German scientists that were working to aid the construction of these Egyptian missiles. So when uh, Erhard and Eshkol arrive in the respective sort of uh, position to substitute uh, Adenauer and Ben-Gurion, what they have in their hands is a very different kind of relationship. Yes, one that had been, you know, 
fundamentally forged by Adenawa and Ben-Gurion in very important ways. But these were also ways that had been for a long part, yeah, for a large part being kept secret by the broader public. And, uh, you know, for example, these secret actions or projects that I mentioned earlier, but also that really had to deal with some explosive issues, uh, including this German involvement, German scientist involvement in the Egyptian missile program, uh, but also the fact of these diplomatic ties that essentially remained uh, hanging uh, in the air. I think to all of this, even though I'm, I'm so it's not 1963, but I mean, there is also in in June 1964. This is also important that uh, the U.S. president, who by that point uh, was LBJ, so Johnson, he also reversed earlier U.S. policy regarding the arms shipments to the Middle East, and also sort of at that point found out about these uh, arms uh, transfers and and agreements between West Germany and Israel, and by that point also sort of compelled Erhard to uh, help with the delivery of 150 US-made tanks to Israel via Italy. This is something that Erhard himself did not particularly want. Uh, and, you know, there is also all these documents, both in the Johnson Library, but also in the Frost volumes, that really, I, I felt almost awkward reading them because it's just so <laughs> obvious that Erhard doesn't quite know how to navigate the situation. Uh, and this also actually plays a role in uh, in all of these dynamics. And it goes back, you know, to, to this point that you were making about the, the role of the US in, in making of this uh, West German-Israeli relationship. So that also is, uh, is uh, an issue that Erhard all of a sudden has to deal with. Domestically speaking within West Germany, is, is Israel sort of comparably like it is in the United States, although that's starting to change a bit, um, is is sort of the Israel Israel West German relationship sort of seen as a, a bipartisan um, bipartisan sacrosanct? Like it's it's something that both parties are are very in favor of and want to really cultivate strong ties between the two countries. Or is this an issue that has more currency? It has more favor in one political party over the other in this period. That's a really interesting question. I will just uh, take a a small uh, step back because I think in terms of these domestic West German political circles, I mentioned earlier this groundbreaking 1952 agreement uh, between West Germany and Israel. Um, What I did not mention then is that after being signed in September 52, this agreement had to be ratified. And this happened in 1953, but this only happened with the support of the opposition and in particular of the SPD. So the, uh, so yeah, the SPD uh, in Germany. So this was something that was sort of expanded to the 1960s in a sense. It was not at all sacrosanct in a sense. And also, you know, you have to imagine that West Germany is, and, and also West German firms by the 1960s, become more and more strong and sort of represented internationally. Also for the West Germans, the Arab countries were very interesting, you know, as business partners, for example, or uh, countries where they really could, uh, could be more present economically and otherwise. So in fact, 
um, you know, it's hard to say that that the Israeli West German issue was um, something that was very much supported by. Uh, a specific party and not the other. But I think in this sense, it's very, very important to keep in mind that the Christian Democratic Union, which was Konrad Adenauer and actually also Erhard's uh, party, you know, had a sort of, it was a delicate topic. And, and really this 1952 agreement only being passed with the support of the SPD, uh, this is something which is very important as well. It is true that in the 1960s, the SPD is also pushing for, you know, ending this uh, stalemate related to the Holstein Doctrine and not having uh, relations with Israel. So it's a it's a delicate uh, it's a delicate balance there uh, from this West German domestic political parties perspective. Um, and I think it's important, yeah, for the listeners to uh, to know that there wasn't any e- sort of easy equivalency in terms of what the chancellor was saying and what, let's say, the CDU, CSU, but then also more broadly, uh, other parties uh, within the coalition were thinking and that, in fact, the role of the SPD was quite uh, important also. Thinking about party politics and, and and the SPD, I was sort of curious to know if you could tell us why you decided to end the book in, in 1969. I mean, of course, in 1969, you have in West Germany, um, Willie Brandt and, and the SPD, which for our listeners who don't know, because we've been using that term now, this, this the Social Democrats, this is the main center left political party in West Germany and in Germany today. Um, is that because they take over uh, the West German government for the first time? And of course, um, Willy Brandt is going to become very famous for instituting what's now known as Ostpolitik, which is sort of a rapprochement with with the Eastern Bloc and with East Germany in particular. Or did you have sort of other periodic considerations in mind when you when you decided to end the book in, in 1969 and, and not in a different year? Yeah, well, 1969 uh, was for me interesting because it sort of closed these intense decades of really, for me, at least in my mind, of overlap between the Cold War tension, Middle Eastern tension, and the whole uh, German-Israeli relationship within it. Uh, What I mean by this is that by 1965, these tensions between West Germany and Israel related to the exchange of ambassador essentially, um, let's say, ended because there was a diplomatic recognition, ambassadors were exchanged, uh, and that after that, um, there was, you know, a sort of complication also of this uh, uh, German presence uh, in Israel, but that becomes also gradually more accepted than by 1969. I was also very, uh, I I thought it was also important to include, for example, the Six-Day War and its aftermath. Uh, And this is, you know, it has to do with different uh, things. Of course, there is the question of the fact that Arab countries do break relations with uh, West Germany after there is this recognition uh, uh, of the State of Israel and the exchange of ambassadors. But really, by 1969, as you were saying, we are gradually moving towards a different historical moment. Also, in a sense, the the global Cold War and this German-German Cold War gradually 
changes phase in the sense that these, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the insistence on the Holstein doctrine wanes very significantly in West Germany. Uh, you know, there is going to be then different, uh, a different kind of relationship between the Federal Republic and also other countries of the Soviet bloc. So, and, and the Middle East also there plays uh, an important part. So for me, in this sense, 1969 presented a sort of natural conclusion of certain dynamics that had started two decades earlier and that somehow changed after that. Uh, so that, that's why I picked it as a, as a concluding date. Although I also have to admit that I could have gone on forever and uh, <laughs> because the, it is, I mean, something that I try and, you know, point that I try and make in the conclusion is that, of course, the relations be, you know, they remain very much fraught. Uh, if you think about uh, the 1972 uh, Munich massacre of the Israeli athletes in, in Munich at the at participating at the Olympics, there right. is, you know, a, a series of, of other uh, very difficult moments in this relationship. But in terms of the question that I was asking myself of, you know, how did this all begin and how was it possible and to what extent did the Cold War play a role in shaping these relations? I had my question answered by that point. For my final question, I wanted to ask you about sort of the, the relevance of your book for, for contemporary international politics today and, and the German-Israeli relationship, especially in a period where over the last few years, uh, anti-Semitism has risen both in Germany and, and around the world. So if, if policymakers in either country were to read your book, you know, what would you want the main takeaways for them to be in sort of looking at the future um, stages of the of the German-Israeli relationship and sort of moving forward in the 21st century. Yeah, well, I think I am one of those, maybe in a minority, every time that there is a a new sort of outbreak of anti-Semitism in Germany uh, and beyond. But I do think that German-Israeli ties are, despite everything, very solid, and that they will remain to be for the time being. So this is how I read the situation right now. Uh, and I think this is something that is also interesting that I thought was quite interesting also when looking at uh, not just German-Israeli relations, but also um, contemporary European Middle Eastern relations in the sense that Germany nowadays enjoys actually a degree of recognition and trust from countries in the region that are extremely diverse and, and different, such as, for example, Iran and Israel, both bilaterally and within the EU. This is something that I see and that I believe really characterizes Germany's position in the region. And I think that it's not possible to understand how this is possible without looking also at the very first decades of the sort of German uh, you know, German life be after World War II in the sense that the significance and the uniqueness of these first two decades of Israel politique and of German-German competition in the Middle East and more broadly, I really think should not be underestimated. This includes also the, the records and the history about uh, the German Democratic Republic, so East Germany. Very often, 
now less, but very often East Germany and its history, it's sort of, it's ignored the extensive archival evidence which has been available since the fall of the Berlin Wall is ignored. But in fact, it's very valuable to consult it because I think that it clearly shows that the Federal Republic's experience of diplomacy in the region and beyond was very much shaped by the competition with this former nemesis, especially in the first two decades of, of uh, its existence. So there is something here to be said about understanding the evolution of German-Israeli relations, which I read as very solid, but also German foreign policy more broadly, uh, which is important not just to understand the Cold War and Germany's role within the Cold War, but also offers a new lens for understanding contemporary political developments. There is also another point which has to do with questions of reconciliation and international reconciliation and how these happen. Now, this is not exactly what my book is about, because it's a book which is very focused on geopolitics, in a sense, uh, and, and Cold War dynamics. But I think that there is also a lesson maybe for policymakers here, in a sense that the history of the first two decades of German-Israeli relations in the aftermath of the Holocaust can also offer an important contribution for understanding processes of international reconciliation. And in particular, the fact that these, including the German-Israeli case that I examine here, they're not examined, they're not defined actually by overall and constant harmony. This is not possible. It was not possible in this case. It's not possible in general. But instead, these are supported by the existence of cooperative frameworks that allow countries or groups within countries to manage or resolve these differences. So in this sense, uh, you know, I write about German-Israeli relations, and this is what my book is about. And I think that keeping a historical lens is crucial, uh, and also avoiding the teleological view. It was not always certain that Germany and Israel would become the staunch partners that they are today. So how did it all begin? How was it possible? This is what I try to answer in the book, and I hope that this is also interesting for policymakers and not just historians. <laughs> Well, I think we'll, we'll have to leave it there. Um, thank you so much, Lorena, for, for coming on the show. Um, I thought this was a, an excellent conversation about the book. Um, the book is Israel Politic, German-Israeli Relations, 1949 to 1969. It was published with Manchester, Manchester University Press in 2020, and you can buy it there and in other bookstores. So thank you so much again, Lorena, for coming on the show. Really appreciate having you. Thank you very much for having me. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you again soon. Goodbye.